What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Section 7 of William Blake by G.K. Chesterton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On consideration, I incline to think that the best way to summarize the art of Blake from its most superficial to its most subtle phase would be simply to take one quick characteristic picture and discuss it fully. First its title and subject, then its look and shape, then its main principles and implications. Let us take as a good working example the weird picture which is reproduced on one of the pages of Gilchrist's Life of Blake. Now the obvious, prompt, and popular view of Blake is very well represented by the mere title of the picture. The first thing any ordinary person will notice about it is that it is called The Ghost of a Flea, and the ordinary person will be very justifiably amused. This is the first fact about William Blake, and that is a fact by no means to be despised. Simply considered as a puzzle or a parlor game, Blake is extraordinarily entertaining. I have known many cultivated families made happy on winter evenings by trying to understand the poem called The Mental Traveler, or wondering what can be the significance of the stanza that runs, Little Mary Bell had a fairy in a nut, Long John Brown had the devil in his gut. Long John Brown loved little Mary Bell, and the fairy drew the devil into the nutshell. The first fact is that we are puzzled and honestly amused. It is as if we had a highly eccentric neighbor in the next garden. Long before we like him, we like gossiping about him. And the mere title, The Ghost of a Flea, represents all that makes Blake a center of literary gossip. And now, having enjoyed the oddity of the title, let us look at the picture. Let us attempt to describe, so far as it can be done in words instead of lines, what Blake thought the ghost of a flea would be like. The scene suggests a high and cheerless corridor, as in some silent castle of giants. Through this a figure, naked and gigantic, is walking with a high-shouldered and somewhat stealthy stride. In one hand the creature has a peculiar curved knife of a cruel shape, 
in the other he has a sort of stone basin the most striking line in the composition is the hard long curve of the spine which goes up without a single flicker to the back of the brutal head as if the whole back view were built like a tower of stone the face is in no sense human it has something that is aquiline and also something that is swinish its eyes are alive with a moony glitter that is entirely akin to madness the thing seems to be passing a curtain and entering a room with this we may mark the second fact about blake that if his only object is to make our flesh creep he does it well his bogies are good reliable bogies there is really something that appeals to the imagination about this notion of the ghost of a flea being a tall vampire stalking through the tall corridors at night we have found blake an amusing madman and now an interesting madman let us go on with the process the third thing to note about this picture is that for blake the ghost of a flea means the idea or principle of a flea the principle of a flea as far as we can see it is bloodthirstiness the feeding on the life of another the fury of the parasite fleas may have other nobler sentiments and meditations but we know nothing about them the vision of a flea is a vision of blood and that is what blake has made of it this is the next point then to be remarked in his make-up as a mystic he is interested in the ideas for which such things stand for him the tiger means an awful elegance for him the tree means a silent strength if it be granted that blake was interested not in the flea but in the idea of the flea we can proceed to the next step which is a particularly important one every great mystic goes about with a magnifying glass he sees every flea as a giant perhaps rather as an ogre i have spoken of the tall castle in which these giants dwell but indeed that tall tower is the microscope it will not be denied that blake shows the best part of a mystic's attitude in seeing that the soul of a flea is ten thousand times larger than a flea but the really interesting point is much more striking it is the essential point upon which all primary understanding of the art of blake really turns the point is this that the ghost of a flea is not only larger than a flea the ghost of a flea is actually more solid than a flea the flea himself is hazy and fantastic compared to the hard and massive actuality of his ghost when we have understood this we have understood the second of the great ideas in blake the idea of ideas to sum up blake's philosophy in any phrase sufficiently simple and popular for our purpose is not at all easy for blake's philosophy was not simple those who imagine that because he was always talking about lambs and daisies about jesus and little children that therefore he held a simple gospel of goodwill entirely misunderstand the whole nature of his mind no man had harder dogmas no one insisted more that religion must have theology 
the everlasting gospel was far from being a simple gospel blake had succeeded in inventing in the course of about ten years as tangled and interdependent a system of theology as the catholic church has accumulated in two thousand much of it indeed he inherited from ancient heretics who were much more doctrinal than the orthodoxy which they opposed notable among these were the gnostics and in some degree the mad franciscans who followed joachim de flore very few modern people would know an akamoth or an eon if they saw him yet one would really have to be on rather intimate terms with these old mystical gods and demons before one could move quite easily in the cosmos which was familiar to blake let us however attempt to find a short and popular statement of the position of blake and all such mystics the plainest way of putting it i think is this this school especially denied the authority of nature some went the extreme length of the mad manichaeans and declared the material universe evil in itself some like blake and most of the poets considered it as a shadow or illusion a sort of joke of the almighty but whatever else nature was nature was not our mother blake applies to her the strange words used by christ to mary and says to mother earth in many poems what have i to do with thee it is common to connect blake and wordsworth because of their ballads about babies and sheep they were utterly opposite if wordsworth was the poet of nature blake was specially the poet of anti-nature against nature he said a certain entity which he called imagination but the word as commonly used conveys very little of what he meant by it he did not mean something shadowy or fantastic but rather something clear-cut definite and unalterable by imagination that is he meant images the eternal images of things you might shoot all the lions on earth but you could not destroy the lion of judah the lion of the imagination you might kill all the lambs of the world and eat them but you could not kill the lamb of the imagination which was the lamb of god that taketh away the sins of the world blake's philosophy in brief was primarily the assertion that the ideal is more actual than the real just as in euclid the good triangle in the mind is a more actual and more practical than the bad triangle on the blackboard many of blake's pictures become intelligible or as intelligible as they can become if we keep this principle in mind for instance there is a fine design representing a naked and heroic youth of great beauty tracing something on the sand the reader when he looks at the title of it is interested to discover that this is a portrait of sir isaac newton this is not so much of an affectation as it seems blake from his own point of view really did think that the eternal isaac newton as god beheld him was more of an actuality than the terrestrial gentleman who happened to be elderly or happened by some sublunary accident to wear clothes therefore when he calls it a portrait 
he is not from his own point of view talking nonsense it is the form and feature of someone who exists and who is different from everyone else just as if it were the ordinary oil painting of an alderman the most important conception can be found in one sentence which he let fall as if by accident nature has no outline but imagination has if a clear black line when looked at through a microscope was seen to be a ragged and confused edge like a mop or a doormat then blake would say so much worse for the microscope if pure lines existed only in the human mind then blake would say so much the better for the human mind if the real earth grew damp and dubious when it met and mixed itself with the sea so much worse for the real earth if the idea of clean-cut truth existed only in the intellect that was the most actual place in which anything could exist in short blake really insisted that man as the image of god had a right to impose form upon nature he would have laughed to scorn the notion of the modern evolutionist that nature is to be permitted to impose formlessness upon man for him the lines in a landscape were boundaries which he drew like frontiers by his authority as the plenipotentiary ambassador of heaven when he drew his line round the viathon he was drawing the divine net around him he tamed his bulls and lions even by creating them and when he made in some picture a line between the sea and land that does not exist in nature he was saying by supernatural right thus far shalt thou come and no farther and here shall thy proud waves be stayed i select the symbol of the sea partly because blake was himself fond of such elemental images and partly because it is an image especially appropriate to blake's great conception of the outline in the eternal imagination nearly all phrases about the sea are specially and spiritually false people talk of the sea as vast and vague drifting and indefinite as if the magic of it lay in having no lines or boundaries but the spell of the sea upon the eye and the soul is exactly this that it is the one straight line in nature they talk of the infinite sea artistically it would be far truer to talk of an infinite haystack for the haystack does slightly fade into a kind of fringe against the sky but the horizon line is not only hard but tight like a fiddle string i've always had a nervous fear that the sea line will snap suddenly and it is exactly this mathematical decision in the sea that makes it so romantic a background for fighting and human figures england was called in catholic days the garden of mary the garden is all the more beautiful because it is enclosed in four hard angular walls of sapphire or emerald any mere tuft or twig can curve with a curve that is incalculable any scrap of moss can contain in itself an irregularity that is infinite the sea is the one thing that is really exciting because the sea is the one thing that is flat whether however these conclusions can be accepted by the reader as true 
they can at least be accepted as typifying the kind of thing which William Blake believed to be true. He would have felt the sea not as a waste, but as a wall. Nature had no outline, but imagination had, and it was imagination that was trustworthy. This definition explains other things. Blake was enthusiastically in favor of the French Revolution, yet he enthusiastically hated that school of skeptics which, in the opinion of many, made the revolution possible. He did not mind Marat, but he detested Voltaire. The reason is obvious in the light of his views on nature and imagination. The Republican idealists he liked because they were idealists, because their abstract doctrines about justice and human equality were abstract doctrines. But the school of Voltaire was naturalistic. It loved to remind man of his earthly origin, and even of his earthly degradation. The war, which Blake loved, was a war of the invisible against the visible. Valmy and Arcolet were part of such a war. It was a war between the visible kings and the invisible republic. But Voltaire's war was exactly the opposite. It was a discrediting of the invisible church by the indecent exhibition of the real church with its fat friars or its foolish old women. Blake had no sympathy with this mere flinging of facts at a great conception. In a really powerful and exact metaphor, he describes the powerlessness of this earthly and fragmentary sceptical attack. Mock on, mock on, Voltaire, Rousseau. Mock on, mock on, tis all in vain. You throw the sand against the wind, and the wind blows it back again. An excellent image for a mere attack by masses of detail. There were some of Blake's intellectual conceptions which I have not professed either to admire or to defend. Some of his views were really what the old medieval world called heresies, and what the modern world, with an equally healthy instinct, but with less scientific clarity, calls fads. In either case, the definition of the fad or heresy is not so very difficult. A fad or heresy is the exaltation of something which, even if true, is secondary or temporary in its nature against those things which are essential and eternal, those things which always prove themselves true in the long run. In short, it is the setting up of the mood against the mind. For instance, it is a mood, a beautiful and lawful mood, to wonder how oysters really feel. But it is a fad, an ugly and unlawful fad, to starve human beings, because you will not let them eat oysters. It is a beautiful mood to feel impelled to assassinate Mr. Carnegie, but it is a fad to maintain seriously that any private person has a right to do it. We all have emotional moments in which we should like to be indecent in a drawing-room, but it is faddest to turn all drawing-rooms into places in which one is indecent. We all have at times an almost holy temptation suddenly to scream out very loud, but it is heretical and pedantic, really, to go on screaming for the remainder of your natural life. 
If you throw one bomb, you are only a murderer. But if you keep on persistently throwing bombs, you are in awful danger of at last becoming a prig. It has been this trouble that has partly poisoned the people from which William Blake inherited, if not his blood, at least his civilization. The real trouble with Puritanism was not that it was a senseless prejudice, nor yet altogether, as would seem superficially obvious, that it was a mere form of devil-worship. It was none of these things in its first and freshest motive. Puritanism was an honorable mood. It was a noble fad. In other words, it was a highly creditable mistake. We have all felt the frame of mind in which one wishes to smash golden croziers and mitres merely because they are golden. We all know how natural it is at certain moments to feel a profound thirst to kick clergymen simply because they are clergymen. But if we seriously ask ourselves whether, in the long run, humanity is not happier with gold in its religion rather than mere drab, then we come to the conclusion that the gold on cross or cope does give more pleasure to most men than it gives pain, for a moment, to us. If we really ask ourselves if religions do not work better with a definite priesthood to do the drudgery of religion, we come to the conclusion that they do work better. Anti-clericalism is a generous and ideal mood. Clericalism is a permanent and practical necessity. To put the matter in an easier and more everyday metaphor, it is natural for any poor Londoner to feel, at times, an abstract aspiration to beat the Lord Mayor of London, but it does not follow that it would really have been a kindness to poor Londoners to abolish the Lord Mayor's show. Now it is in this sense that we may truly say that Blake, upon one side of his mind, was something worse than a maniac. He was a faddist. He did permit aspirations or prejudices, which are accidental or one-sided, to capture and control him at the expense of things really more human and enduring, things which he shared with all the children of men. I do not allude to his supernaturalism, for on that he is in no sense alone, nor even specially eccentric. I do not refer to his love of the gorgeous, the terrible or even the secretive of temples, initiations, and hieroglyphic religion, for that sort of mystery is really quite popular and even democratic. That sort of secrecy is a very open secret. It is usual to hear a man say in modern England that he has too much common sense to believe in ghosts, but common sense is in favor of a belief in ghosts, the common sense of mankind. It is usual to hear a man say that he likes common sense and does not like the mummeries and flummeries of church ritual. But common sense is in favor of mummery and ritualism, the common sense of mankind. The man who attempts to do without symbols is a prophet so austere and isolated as to be dangerously near to a madman. The man who does not believe in ghosts is a solitary fanatic and lonely dreamer among the sons of men. Therefore I do not in any sense count even his craziest visions or wildest symbols among the real fads or eccentricities of Blake. 
but he had mental attitudes which were really fads and eccentricities in this essential sense that they were not exaggerations of a general human feeling but definite denials of it he did not lead humanity but attacked or even obstructed it many instances might be given of the kind of thing i mean there was something of it in blake's persistent and even pedantic insistence that war as war is evil there was something of tolstoy in blake and that means something that is inhuman as well as something that is heroic but his allusions to this were occasional and perhaps even accidental and better cases could certainly be found the essential of all the cases is however that when he went wrong it was as an intellectual and not as a poet take for example his notion of going naked here i think blake is merely a sort of hard theorist here in spite of his imagination and his laughter there was even a touch of the prig about him he was obscene on principle so to a great extent was walt whitman a dictionary is supposed to contain all words so it has to contain coarse words leaves of grass was planned to praise all things so it had to praise gross things there was something of this pedantic perfection in blake's escapades as the hygienist insists on wearing jaeger clothes he insisted on wearing no clothes as the ascete must wear sandals he must wear nothing he's not really lawless at all he is bowing to the law of his own outlawed logic there is nothing at all poetical in this revolt william blake was a great and real poet but in this point he was simply unpoetical walt whitman was a great and real poet but on this point he was prosaic and priggish two extraordinary men are not poets because they tear away the veil from sex on the contrary it is because all men are poets that they hang a veil over sex the ploughman does not plough by night because he does not feel specially romantic about ploughing he does love by night because he does feel specially romantic about sex in this matter blake was not only unpoetical but far less poetical than the mass of ordinary men decorum is not an over-civilized convention decorum is not tame decorum is wild as wild as the wind at night mysterious as the moons that rise at midnight in the pines of var modesty is too fierce and elemental a thing for the modern pedants to understand i had almost said too savage a thing it has in it the joy of escape and the ancient shyness of freedom in this matter blake and whitman are merely among the modern pedants in not admiring sexual reticence these two great poets simply did not understand one of the greatest poems of humanity end of section seven section eight of william blake by g k chesterton this librivox recording is in the public domain 
i have given as an instance his disregard of the idea of mystery and modesty as involved in dress it was an unpoetical thought that there should be no curtains of gold or scarlet round the shrine of the holy spirit but there is stronger instances in his theology and philosophy thus he imbibed the idea common among early gnostics and not unknown to christian science speculators of our day that it was a confession of weakness in christ to be crucified at all if he had really attained divine life so ran the argument he ought to have attained immortal life he ought to have lived forever upon the earth with an excess of what can only be called impudence he even turned gethsemane into a sort of moral breakdown the sudden weakness which accepted death the general claim that vices are poetical is largely unfounded and this is an excellent example of how unpoetical is the vice of profanity blasphemy is not wild blasphemy is in its nature prosaic it consists in regarding in a commonplace manner something which other and happier people regard in a rapturous and imaginative manner this is well exemplified in poor blake and his gnostic heresy about jesus in holding that christ was weakened by being crucified he is certainly a pedant and certainly not a poet if there is one point on which the spirit of the poets and the poetic soul in all peoples is on the side of christianity it is exactly this one point on which blake is against christianity was crucified dead and buried the spectacle of a god dying is much more grandiose than the spectacle of a man living forever the former suggests that awful changes have really entered the alchemy of the universe the latter is only vaguely reminiscent of hygienic octogenarians and eno's fruit salts moreover to the poet as to the child death must be dreadful even if it is desirable to talk as some modern theosophists do about death being nothing the mere walking into another room to talk like this is not only prosaic and profoundly unchristian it is decidedly vulgar it is against the whole trend of the secret emotions of humanity it is indecent like persuading a decent peasant to go without clothes there is more of the song and music of mankind in a clerk putting on his sunday clothes than in a fanatic running naked down cheapside and there is more real mysticism in nailing down a coffin lid than in pretending in mere rhetoric to throw open the doors of death i've given two cases of the presence in blake of these anti-human creeds which i call fads the case of clothes and the case of the crucifixion i could give a much larger number of them but i think their nature is here sufficiently indicated they are all cases in which blake ceased to be a poet through becoming entirely instead of only partially separated from the people and this i think is certainly connected with that quality in him to which i referred in analyzing the eighteenth century 
I mean the element of oligarchy and fastidiousness in the mystics and masonries of that epoch. They were all founded in an atmosphere of degrees and initiations. The chief difference between Christianity and the thousand transcendental schools of today is substantially the same as the difference, nearly two thousand years ago, between Christianity and the thousand sacred rites and secret societies of the pagan empire. The deepest difference is this, that the heathen mysteries are so far aristocratic that they are understood by some and not understood by others. The Christian mysteries are so far democratic that nobody understands them at all. When we have fairly stated this doubtful, and even false, element in Blake's philosophy, we can go on with greater ease and thoroughness to state where the solid and genuine value of that philosophy lay. It consisted in its placid and positive defiance of materialism, a work upon which all mystics, pagan and Christian, have been employed from the beginning. It is not unnatural that they should have fallen into many errors, employed dangerous fallacies, and even ruined the earth for the sake of the cloudland. But the war in which they were engaged has been, none the less, the noblest and most important effort of human history, and in their whole army there was no greater warrior than Blake. One of the strange and rooted contradictions of the eighteenth century is a combination between profound revolution and superficial conventionality. It might almost be said that the men of that time had altered morals long before they thought of altering manners. The French Revolution was especially French in this respect, that it was, above all things, a respectable revolution. Violence was excused, madness was excused, but eccentricity was inexcusable. These men had taken a king's head off his shoulders long before they had thought of taking the powder off their own heads. Danton could understand the massacres of September, but he could not understand the worship of the goddess of reason or all the antics of the German madman Klutz. Robespierre grew tired of the terror, but he never grew tired of shaving every morning. It is impossible to avoid the impression that this is rather a characteristic of the revolutions which really make a difference and defy the world. The same is true of that fallacious, but most powerful and genuine, English monument which was covered by the words Darwin and Evolution. If there was one striking thing about the fine old English agnostics, it was that they were entirely indifferent to alterations in the externals of pose or fashion, that they seemed to have supposed that the huge intellectual overturn of agnosticism would leave the obvious respectability of life exactly as it was. They thought that one might entirely alter a man's head without in the least altering his hat. They thought that one might shatter the twin wings of an archangel without throwing the least doubt upon the twin whiskers of a mid-Victorian professor. 
and though there was undoubtedly a certain solemn humour about such a position yet on the whole i think the mid-victorian agnostics were employing the right kind of revolution it is broadly a characteristic of all valuable new-fashioned opinions that they are brought in by old-fashioned men for the sincerity of such men is proved by both facts the fact that they do care about their new truth and the fact that they do not care about their old clothes herbert spencer's philosophy is all the more serious because his appearance to judge by his photographs was quite startlingly absurd and while the tory caricatures were deriding gladstone because he introduced very new-fangled legislation they were also deriding him because he wore very antiquated collars but though this strange combination of convention in small things with revolt in big ones is not uncommon in hardy and human reformers there is a quite special emphasis on this combination in the case of the eighteenth century the very man who did deeds which were more dreadful and daring than we can dream to achieve were the very men who spoke and wrote with a mincing propriety and an almost effeminate fastidious distinction such as we should scarcely condescend to employ the eighteenth-century man called the eighteenth-century woman an elegant female but he was quite capable of saving her from a mad bull he described his ideal republic as a place containing all the refined sensibilities of virtue with all the voluptuous seductions of pleasure but he would be hacked with an axe and blown out of a gun to get it he could pursue new notions with a certain solid and virile constancy as if they were old ones and the explanation is partly this that however revolutionary they were old ones in this sense at least that they involved the pursuit of some primary human hope to its original home they powdered their hair because they really thought that a civilized man should be civilized or if you will artificial they spoke of an elegant female because they really thought with their whole souls that a female ought to be elegant the old rebels preserved the old fashions and among others the old fashion of rebelling the new rebels the revolutionists of our time are intent upon introducing new fashions in boots beds food or furniture so they have no time to rebel but if we have once grasped this eighteenth-century element of the insistence upon the elegant female because she is elegant we have got hold of a fundamental fact in the relation of that century to blake it is instinctive to describe blake as a fantastic artist and yet there is a very real sense in which blake is conventional if any reader thinks the phrase paradoxical he can easily discover that it is true he can discover it simply by comparing blake even in his most wild and arbitrary work with any merely modern artist who has the name of being wild 
with Aubrey Beardsley, or even with Rossetti. All Blake's heroes are conventional heroes, made unconventionally heroic. All Blake's heroines are elegant females, without their clothes. But in both cases they exaggerate and insist upon the traditional ideal of the sexes, the broad shoulders of the god and the broad hips of the goddess. Blake detested the sensuality of Rubens, but if he had been obliged to choose between the women of Rubens and the women of Rossetti, he would have flung himself on the neck of Rubens. For we have a false conception of what constitutes exaggeration. The end of the eighteenth century, being a dogmatic period, believed in certain things and exaggerated them. The end of the nineteenth century simply did not know what things to exaggerate, so it fell back upon merely underrating them. Blake tried to make Wallace look even bolder and fiercer than Wallace can possibly have looked. That was his exaggeration of Wallace. But Burne Jones' exaggeration of Perseus is not an exaggeration at all. It is an understatement. For the whole fascination of Burne Jones' Perseus is that he looks frightened. Blake's figure of a woman is aggressively and monstrously womanly. That is its fascination, if it has any. But the fascination of a Beardsley woman, if she has any, is exactly that she is not quite a woman. So much of what we have meant by exaggeration is really diminution. So much of what we have meant by fancy is simply falling short of fact. The Burne Jones man is interesting because he is not quite brave enough to be a man. The Beardsley woman is interesting because she is not quite pretty enough to be a woman. But Blake's men are brave beyond all decency, and Blake's women are so swaggeringly bent on being beautiful that they become quite ugly in the process. If anyone wishes to know exactly what I mean, I recommend him to look at any one of those extraordinary designs of nymphs in which a woman, or as Blake loved to call it, the female form, is made to perform an impossible feat of acrobatics. It is impossible, but it is quite female. Perhaps the words are not wholly inconsistent. A living serpent might perform such a piece of athletics, but even then only a female living serpent. But nobody would ask a Burne Jones or a Beardsley female to perform any athletics at all. Blake in pictorial art was not a mere master of the moonstruck or the grotesque. On the contrary, he was, as artists go, exceptionally a champion of the smooth and sensible in so far as being modern means being against the great conventions of mankind, indifferent to the difference of the sexes, or inclined to despise doctrinal outline, then there was never any man who was so little of a modern as Blake. He may have been mad, but there are varieties even in madness. There are madmen, like Blake, who go mad on health and there are madmen who go mad on sickness. 
the distinction is a solid one. You may think the queerly and partially clothed women of Aubrey Beardsley ugly. You may think the naked women of William Blake ugly. But you must perceive this peculiar and extraordinary effect about the women of William Blake, that they are women. They are exaggerated in the direction of the female form. They swing upon big hips. They let out and loosen long and luxuriant hair. Now the queer females of Aubrey Beardsley are queerest of all in this, that they are not even female. They are narrow where women have a curve, and cropped where women have a head of hair. Blake's women are often anatomically impossible, but they are so far women that they could not possibly be anything else. The comparison between Blake's art and such art as Aubrey Beardsley's is not an invidious impertinence. It is really an important distinction. Blake's work may be fantastic, but it is a fantasia on an old and recognizable air. It exaggerates characteristics. Blake's women are too womanish. His young men are too athletic. His old men are too preposterously old. But Aubrey Beardsley does not really exaggerate. He understates. His young men have less than the energy of youth. His women fascinate by the weakness of sex rather than by its strength. In short, if one is really to exaggerate the truth, one must have some truth to exaggerate. The decadent mystic produces an effect not by exaggerating, but by distorting. True exaggeration is a thing both subtle and austere. Caricature is a serious thing. It is almost blasphemously serious. Caricature really means making a pig more like a pig than even God has made him. But anyone can make him not like a pig at all. Anyone can create a weird impression by giving him the beard of a goat. In Aubrey Beardsley, the artistic thrill, and there is an artistic thrill, consists in the fact that the women are not quite women, nor the men quite men. Blake had absolutely no trace of this morbidity of deficiency. He never asks us to consider a tree magical because it is a stunted tree, or a man a magician merely because he has one eye. His form of fantasy would rather be to give a tree more branches than it could carry, and to give a man bigger eyes than he could keep in his head. There is really a great deal of difference between the fantastic and the exaggerative. One may be fantastic merely by leaving something out. One might call it a fantasy if the official portrait of Wellington represented him without a nose but one could hardly call it an exaggeration. End of section 8 Section 9 of William Blake by G. K. Chesterton This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. There is an everlasting battle in which Blake is on the side of the angels, and what is much more difficult and dangerous on the side of all the sensible men. The question is so enormous, and so important, that it is difficult to state, 
even by reason of its reality. For in this world of ours, we do not so much go on and discover small things. Rather, we go on and discover big things. It is the details that we see first. It is the design that we only see very slowly. And some men die, never having seen it at all. We all wake up on a battlefield. We see certain squadrons in certain uniforms gallop past. We take an arbitrary fancy to this or that color, to this or that plume. But it often takes us a long time to realize what the fight is about, or even who is fighting whom. One may say, to keep up the metaphor, that many a man has joined the French army from love of the horse guards blue. Many an old-fashioned eighteenth-century sailor has gone over to the Chinese merely because they wore pigtails. It is so easy to turn against what is really yourself for the sake of some accidental resemblance to yourself. You may envy the curled hair of Hercules, but do not envy the curly hair until you wish that you were an African tribesman. You may regret that you have a short nose, but do not dream of its growing longer and longer till it is like the trunk of an elephant. Wait until you know what the battle is broadly about before you rush roaring after any advancing regiment, for a battle is a complicated thing. Each army contains coats of different color. Each section of each army advances at a different angle. You may fancy that the greens are charging the blues, exactly at the moment when both are combining to effect a fine military maneuver. You may conceive that two similar-looking columns are supporting each other at the very instant when they are about to blaze at each other with cannon, rifle, and revolver. So, in the modern intellectual world, we can see flags of many colors, deeds of manifold interest. The one thing we cannot see is the map. We cannot see the simplified statement which tells us what is the origin of all the trouble. How shall we manage to state, in an obvious and alphabetical manner, the ultimate query, the primordial pivot on which the whole modern problem turns? It cannot be done in long, rationalistic words. They convey by their very sound the suggestion of something subtle. One must try to think of something in the way of a plain street metaphor or an obvious analogy. For the thing is not too hard for human speech. It is actually too obvious for human speech. The fundamental fight in which, despite all this heat and headlong misunderstanding, William Blake is on the right side, is one which would require a book about the battle and not about William Blake. By an accident at once convenient and deceptive, it can largely be described as geographical as well as philosophical. It is crudely true that there are two types of mysticism, that of Christendom and that of Orientalism. Now, this scheme of East and West is inadequate, but it does happen to fit in with the working facts. For the odd thing is this, not only are most of the merely modern movements of idealism oriental, 
but their Orientalism is all they have in common. They all come together, and yet their only apparent point of union is that they all come from the East. Thus a modern vegetarian is generally also a teetotaler. Yet there is certainly no obvious intellectual connection between consuming vegetables and not consuming fermented vegetables. A drunkard, when lifted laboriously out of the gutter, might well be heard huskily to plead that he had fallen there through excessive devotion to a vegetable diet. On the other hand, a man might well be a practiced and polished cannibal, and still be a strict teetotaler. A subtle parallelism might doubtless be found, but the only quite obvious parallelism is that vegetarianism is Buddhist and teetotalism is Mohammedan. In the same way, it is the cold truth that there is no kind of logical connection between being an agnostic and being a socialist. But it is the fact that the Chinese are as agnostic as oxen, and it is the fact that the Japanese are as socialistic as rats. These appalling ideas, that a man has no divine individual destiny, that making a minute item in the tribe or hive is his only earthly destiny, these ideas do come all together out of the same quarter. They do, in practice, blow upon us out of the east, as cold and inhuman as the east wind. Nevertheless, I do not accept this dull definition by locality. I think it is a spirit in Asia, and even a spirit that can be named. It is approximately described as an insane simplicity. In all these cases we find people attempting to perfect a thing solely by simplification, by obliterating special features. This cosmos is full of wingless birds, of hornless cattle, of hairless women, and colorless wine all fading into a formless background. There is a Christian simplicity, of course, opposed to this pessimist simplicity. Both the Western and Eastern mystic may be called children, but the Eastern child treads the sandcastle back into sand and enjoys seeing the silver snowman melt back into muddy water. This return to chaos and a comfortless simplicity is the only intelligent meaning of the words reaction and reactionary. In this sense, much of modern science is reaction, and most modern scientists are reactionaries. But where this reversion to the void can be seen most clearly is in all the semi-oriental sects to which I have referred. Teetotalism is a simplification. Its objection to beer is not really that beer makes a man like a beast. On the contrary, its real objection is that beer most unmistakably separates a man from a beast. Vegetarianism is a simplification. The herb-eating Hindu saint does not really dislike the carnivorous habit because it destroys an animal. Rather, he dislikes it because it creates an animal, renews the special aims and appetites of the separate animal, man. Agnosticism, the ancient creed of Confucius, is a simplification. 
it is a shutting out of all the shadowy splendors and terrors an arcadian exclusiveness il faut cultiver son yardin japanese patriotism the blind collectivism of the tribe is a simplification it is an attempt to turn our turbulent and varied humanity into one enormous animal with twenty million legs but only one head there is an utterly opposite kind of simplicity that springs from joy but this kind of simplicity certainly is rooted in despair now for practical purposes there is an antagonistic order of mysticism that which celebrates personality positive variety and special emphasis just as in broad fact the mystery of dissolution is emphasized and typified in the east so in practice the mystery of concentration and identity is manifest in the historic churches of christendom even the foes of christianity would readily agree that christianity is personal in the sense that a vulgar joke is personal that is corporeal vivid perhaps ugly this being so it has been broadly true that any mystic who broke with the christian tradition tended to drift towards the eastern and pessimistic tradition in the albigensian and other heresies the east crawled in with its serpentine combination of glitter and abasement of pessimism and pleasure every dreamer who strayed outside the christian order strayed towards the hindu order and every such dreamer found his dream turning into a nightmare if a man wandered far from christ he was drawn into the orbit of buddha the other great magnet of mankind the negative magnet the thing is true down to the latest and the most lovable visionaries of our own time if they do not climb up into christendom they slide down into tibet the greatest poet now writing in the english language and it is surely unnecessary to say that i mean mr yeats has written a whole play round the statement where there is nothing there is god in this he sharply and purposely cuts himself off from the real christian position that where there is anything there is god but though by an almost political accident oriental pessimism has been the practical alternative to the christian type of transcendentalism there is and always has been a third thing that was neither christian in an orthodox sense nor buddhistic in any sense before christianity existed there was a european school of optimist mystics among whom the great name is plato and ever since there have been movements and appearances in europe of this healthier heathen mysticism which did not shrink from the shapes of things or the emphatic colors of existence something of the sort was in the nature worship of the renaissance philosophers something of the sort may even have been behind the strange mixture of ecstasy and animality in the isolated episode of luther this solid and joyful occultism appears at its best in swedenborg but perhaps at its boldest and most brilliant in william blake the present writer will not in so important a matter 
pretend to the absurd thing called impartiality. He is personally quite convinced that if every human being lived a thousand years, every human being would end up either in utter pessimistic skepticism or in the Catholic creed. William Blake, in his rationalist and highly Protestant age, was frequently reproached for his tenderness towards Catholicism, but it would have surprised him very much to be told that he would join it. But he would have joined it, if he had lived a thousand years, or even, perhaps, a hundred. He was on the side of historic Christianity on the fundamental question on which it confronts the East. The idea that personality is the glory of the universe and not its shame, that creation is higher than evolution because it is more personal, that pardon is higher than nemesis because it is more personal, that the forgiveness of sins is essential to the communion of saints and the resurrection of the body to the life everlasting. It was a mark of the old Eastern initiations it is still a mark of the grades and planes of our theosophical thinkers that as a man climbs higher and higher god becomes to him more and more formless ethereal and even thin and in many of these temples both ancient and modern the final reward of serving the god through vigils and purifications is that one is at last worthy to be told that the god doesn't exist. Against all this emasculate mysticism, Blake, like a titan, rears his colossal figure and his earthquake voice. Through all the cloud and chaos of his stubborn symbolism and his perverse theories, through the tempest of exaggeration and the full midnight of madness, he reiterates with passionate precision that only that which is lovable can be adorable that deity is either a person or a puff of wind, that the more we know of higher things, the more palpable and incarnate we shall find them, that the form filling the heavens is the likeness of the appearance of a man. Much of what Blake thus wildly thundered has been put quietly and quaintly by Coventry Patmore, especially in that delicate and daring passage in which he speaks of the bonds, the simpleness, and even the narrowness of God. The wise man will follow a star, low and large and fierce in the heavens, but the nearer he comes to it, the smaller and smaller it will grow, till he finds it in the humble lantern over some little inn or stable. Not till we know the high things shall we know how lowly they are. Meanwhile, the modern superior transcendentalist will find the facts of eternity incredible, because they are so solid. He will not recognize heaven, because it is so like the earth. End of section 9. End of William Blake by G. K. Chesterton. Read by Deborah Beach Giordano. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How
How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.